As great as Moshe Rabbeinu was in prophecy, unfortunately, the prophet Jeremiah was as great in suffering. He was an extraordinary prophet that cried over Am Yisrael and suffered with them unlike any other prophet. But what did Jeremiah really cry about? We review it during this day of Tisha B'Av, which Be'ezrat Hashem will one day be a day of celebration. Perhaps we could turn today into a day of celebration by knowing what Jeremiah cried about that brought the calamities in order for us to avoid those very same disasters from being repeated. Tonight's lecture is going to give you a little history, a little bit of clarification about how the information from back then that caused and led to disaster is somehow information that could influence you today and in fact is being taught to the people today. This lecture is a must hear for anyone, not just today, but literally on a regular basis. Because the way that we can avoid the mistakes of the past is by first knowing that they exist. Share the lecture and be holy. We are uh, here tonight again a 1955 years after the destruction of the second Beta Mikdash, a horrific day where we have to commemorate, we have to uh, remember it, we have to mourn over it, I should say. Uh, we have to really understand what happened in order to understand what's happening uh, you know tonight and for the next approximately 24 hours or so the Jewish people are supposed to cry over the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash the Gemara also says that if the Goim knew how extraordinary extraordinarily beneficial the Bet HaMikdash was, even for them, uh, then they would also uh, cry over it. And in fact, they would have never let it happen because they would have literally put all of their armies around the Bet HaMikdash in order to protect it. Now, in the world today, we spoke about it last night and we're going to briefly discuss it again and then obviously expand further there is confusion in the air now some are so confused that they believe that their confusion is Mashiach their confusion is you know something good but in reality is that anybody that knows a little bit of history knows that this air is very similar to the air that we all smelled right before the previous destructions, the previous disasters. Now, the Alkut Yosef, in his uh, introduction to Tisha B'Av, on page 42 and 43, he brings the name of the Chachamim, one of the things that 
perhaps will help us start our path to where we were, where we are, and what we need to do. And he says that the prophet Jeremiah, which in Hebrew is Yeremiah, in chapter 31, verse 7 and 8, says a prophecy in the name of God about the future, the messianic future, where the prophet says, I'm going to bring them from the northern land. They will come while weeping, and I will deliver them through their beseeching. Interestingly, some 10 years ago, I had a chidush where, looking at that verse, where the prophecy is that Hashem is going to bring us out of the northern land, while some of the uh, different chachamim throughout the ages have... Uh, had different thoughts about where this north actually means. The only land in the world that is called north is North America, which also is the place where there is more Jews than any other place in the world aside from Israel. You know, between Canada and uh, the United States, there are well over six million Jews. And for us to be... Uh, removed from there and brought to Israel seems fitting. And the prophet is saying that when the Mashiach will come, we will cry. But God will console us, as the prophet says, I will convert their mourning into joy, and I will console them and lift them from their sorrow. And this says clearly that even after God will convert our mourning into joy, he will still find it necessary to console us. Why does he need to console us? In our daily prayers, we say that we the sound of the tremendous shofar for our freedom and raise a banner to gather together all our exiles. This is in your Amidah. After the... Um, in Amidah, after the blessing of the, uh, whether it's the summer or the winter, it's the seventh blessing, it says, So each day we pray for the sound of the shofar, the shofar that will symbolize the Mashiach has arrived, the shofar that will symbolize that Eliyahu Navi has announced the Mashiach is here. And for those that ask, how would we know the Mashiach is here? How do we know that he is he? That's because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to make sure that both the righteous and the wicked know that the Mashiach is who he is and there will not be any doubts. And in so many words, we're all waiting this tremendous sound of the shofar because it'll symbolize our freedom that our exile is over and when the shofar is blown says the Rishon Zion, everyone is alerted since everyone is within range hears it automatically 
And when the banner is raised, only those who will look in its direction will notice it. And if someone turned to another direction, he will not see the banner regardless of the height in which it's raised. So the sound of the tremendous shofar for our freedom is referring towards the other nations who hold us captive in their land as there will be a war, a big war. Before Mashiach arrives, there will be the war of Gog Magog. One of the prophecies says that there is going to be a major war between Esav and Ishmael until they both turn on Israel and attack them together. And Ishmael will actually take over Israel for nine months. So this fits within that prophecy that that shofar is going to be the tremendous shofar that will symbolize that our freedom is here from those captive hands. And they might choose to ignore the coming of the Mashiach and refuse to release the Jews in their lands, but they will not be able to ignore the blast of the shofar because they will be then forced to grant the Jews the freedom to return to their homeland. Obviously, the war will end when the Mashiach arrives in a good way for the righteous, but in not such a good way for the wicked. And the raised banner is referring to when Hashem chooses to gather in all of the Jews around the world, in the exile. Only those Jews who see the banner and pay attention to it will be gathered, which means that only those who waited in anticipation for the redemption will merit to be gathered and returned to their homeland. Those who are not interested will not be able to see the banner. They will not be redeemed. The blast of the shofar will not affect all Jews. Meaning that the ones that don't care for the Torah, do not keep mitzvot, are heretics, are enemies of the Torah, that shofar is not going to be a good sign for them, a good sound for them. The Jews who will be redeemed, says the Akut Yosef, will need to be consoled for their loss of their brethren who chose to ignore the calling and to remain behind in the exile. Meaning that part of the crying of the righteous is going to be that they weren't able to save everyone they wanted. So while it's common today for any semi-religious Jew, especially people that are Baalei Tshuva, even more so converts, and even more so than everybody else, the ignoramuses that could be both, you know, could come from all shapes and sizes, to think that when Mashiach comes, he's going to fix everybody's problems and everyone will be saved. But as the Akut Yosef says, there's nothing further from the truth than that. Not everyone will be saved. The enemies of God will not be saved. The ones that ignore the Torah will not be saved. The ones that 
distorted, the Torah will not be saved. Now, so why do we say this blessing every day in Amidah three times a day? It's to remind us not to be those that are ignoring the Torah and distorting it and trying to make new rules. Trying to take verses in the Torah out of context. Saying that what was forbidden for the last 3,335 years is now permitted simply because the generation is weak. What has been forbidden since the time of creation and called an abomination has suddenly become permitted according to some people just because people have lost their mind. Those people will not be saved. Now, the Gemara in Masechet Sota, page 49b, says that before Mashiach comes, there's going to be certain signs. One of the signs is going to be that there's going to be a, en- more enemies of the Torah, more distortions of the Torah, more heretics. The leadership, whether it be government, or even in some cases rabbinical. And needless to say, around the world, will actually do things against their own congregants. But even people will act towards their own worst interest rather than best interest. There was a law passed in Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, recently. They're calling it Chokachurban, the law of destruction. What is this law of destruction? Up till now, the judges in the secular court had more power than even the prime minister and president of the country. Where anyone that came up with a law, regardless of who it was, if the judge sitting in the court did not like the law, according to his own personal preference, he simply rejected it. Many people thought that, you know, if you vote for certain people in the government in Israel, then perhaps if you have a religious party, it's good. If you have a non-religious party, lefty liberal, it's not good. But in reality, the ones that were really running the country were the judges. And this is something that became much more apparent in the last few years. But now they made a law. They passed a law that we can no longer allow the judges to rule the country. That's not their role in the world in any country. They're causing too much damage. And therefore, a judge can no longer declare a law legal or illegal based on his own personal preference. There has to be more, you know, that he has to, you know, there has to be a law passed. Now, this you would think the people would love. Why? Because if, let's say, for example, there is a new bill being passed that's going to help their community, their interest in some way, and but the judge 
that is uh, overseeing that particular issue doesn't like that issue. In fact, he hates it. And he decides that because he personally doesn't like it, he rejects it. So obviously this is in no one's interest. So you would think that the people would be happy about this. You'd be sadly disappointed. Over 30% of the people in Israel right now have stated that they want to leave the state of Israel because of this new law, meaning they're so upset that the judges are not being given dictatorship over the country that they're willing to leave the country. And countless people are protesting in the streets. All of the newspapers published a front page that was black to show their protest and how they're so upset that the rulership of a judge that's unlike any other country in the world in history is being removed. The people are literally acting against their own interest. Now, this is not the only false belief in the air today. There is a constant marketing uh, 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 effort by different organizations that say never again referring to never having a holocaust again we're never gonna allow it to happen again it happened nearly 80 years ago six million jews were murdered and we are not gonna let it happen again that's what the banners and different commercials and all types of marketing efforts from different organizations are spending millions and millions of dollars and endless words telling people never again in fact it's been such a successful marketing effort that even the non-jews will sometimes say never again the holocaust will never happen again So you actually think that just because you went on the internet and printed out some flyers that say never again, that means that it will never happen again? That's it? That's all you need to do in order to eliminate disaster? Just make some tweets, or I should say X's, because that's the name of the new company? All you have to do is make a Facebook page that calls itself never again. And that's it. Disaster is gone. You've cured the problems of the so-called Jewish question. You've cured anti-Semitism. You've cured terrorism. Just by saying never again. That's it. We're done. No Holocaust. Oh, it's not just the marketing. It's not just the flyers. It's not even just the emails. We also have missiles. We have the Kippah Duma, the missile system in Israel, costing $100,000 per missile, 
to defend the country and the people against $3,000 little rockets, which the terrorists shoot by the hundreds, literally bankrupting the country by simply doing whatever they want. And where do they get the money to buy those $3,000 rockets? From the Jews, of course, from Israel. Meaning, the government of Israel gives money to the Palestinian terrorists in order for them to buy missiles to go shoot in Israel and to defend themselves. They have to spend $100,000 for this defense system because that gives us the confidence that never again Holocaust will never happen again. Perhaps they should give just give them a everything but money so they don't have to buy the missiles and won't need the never again campaign that's failing us. But the truth is that anyone with a little bit of a brain knows that you can say never again every single second for the rest of your life and it literally means absolutely nothing because you and your marketing effort and your missiles and your armies do not decide whether there's going to be a holocaust or not god decides this now why would god allow a holocaust we're going to get to that But any normal person knows that this never again marketing is literally false prophecy false marketing false advertisement because it doesn't mean anything if you actually spent all of those hundreds of millions of dollars that were spent on never again campaigns to simply feed the poor people in israel you would have already resolved poverty if you would have spent all of those hundreds of millions of dollars on never again marketing, instead of that, you would have invested it into educating the people about what is the truth versus what is falsehood. You would have resolved all of the issues that are in the country today. But this, Rabotai, is not supposed to make sense. According to them, it's not about what makes sense it's about what sells and who is them them is the false prophets and they come in all shapes and sizes there are some people that are in the left liberal anti-torah side that are going to be enemies of the mashiach they are the erev rav the Zohar Kadosh gives five different segments of the Erev Rav. And one of them, one of the segments of the Erev Rav, of, the, of Amalek, are actually going to be Jews that are going to fight against the Mashiach and join the enemy. So when the Mashiach arrives and that horn is sounded, they're not only not going to be happy, they're going to get their weapons. And try to fight the Mashiach. Obviously, this will not help them because 
ברוח פיו ימית רשע, ומשיח is not going to need weapons, he's not going to need tanks, he's not going to need political powers, negotiations, and all types of agreements. As the verse says, ברוח פיו ימית רשע, just simply with the spoken words that come out of his mouth, he will destroy all the wicked. But according to those people that are haters of the Torah and needless to say, future enemies of the Mashiach, they already say to themselves, there's no need for the Mashiach. Why do we need Mashiach? Unfortunately, there are even some Jews that are not lefty liberals anti-Torah, or at least they don't think they are, but they also don't necessarily think we need a Mashiach. In fact, they like things as they are. They like living where they live, whether it be America or Israel or Panama or Australia or any place that they have a nice fancy house. There's really no reason for them to uh, await Mashiach because they are already enjoying life as, as it would seem. So there are many people that really, if Mashiach came, they would be disappointed. But this, of course, for anyone that is connected to the Torah, connected to the truth, knows that this is obviously another type of false prophecy, false message. But the worst of them all, the worst of them all, is the message that comes from those that say that you do not need the Torah in order to connect to God. Meaning that you could simply believe in God in your own way without Judaism, without the Torah. You could just simply believe the way you want to believe and the way you understand. Now this unfortunately is not a new belief system. But it is the brainchild of certain Chabad congregations where people like Manus Friedman and some of his other wicked friends have even students today that have all types of videos where they say that just like their teacher Manus where he says that religion is bad for you, Chabad is not religious, they're simply Jews. You don't need religion. There's one that even has a entire uh, show about how he hates religion, but he considers himself a believer in God. And he observes the mitzvot that he likes and cares for, and the other one, he calls them evil and disgusting. He went from according to him, being a pornography addict that liked to talk about how he had such a difficult time overcoming his addiction to pornography, to being a person that hates Judaism, but still wears a kippah and observes some mitzvot, but calls all of the things that would scare you 
all of the things that are related to rebuke that are supposed to remind you that you have to improve he calls them disgusting calls them terrible rabbinical inventions kind of sounds like the Christian missionaries that uh, like to insult the Torah and he's a Chabadnik apparently now many people today have this belief that you can have your own unique connection to God and whatever your understanding is that somehow becomes the truth which means sort of like how people are today are changing species and genders and all types of other things that are unchangeable by simply declaring themselves birds and cats and there's one person that says that she is uh asking for the public to help her but not just anyone in the public but those that are just like her that believe themselves to be a bird just like her because she is upset that she sometimes doesn't know how to deal with her wings because they feel wet this is a real person this is a real thing people actually believe that they are something else and who are you to tell them that they're not the same concept applies to Judaism religiosity in general people think that whatever they think and whatever they know that means the truth in so many words there's no consensus of what truth is everyone can simply redefine what truth is and somehow that is true now if anybody would actually look up the word truth in the dictionary or simply would track any type of research or write-ups that have been written about what truth actually means you'll see that there's a world of you know of difference between what truth is and what people are describing is as and it's important for us to know that the truth is something that is unchangeable if it was true yesterday it's therefore true today if it's not true today then it wasn't true yesterday if God was one when he created the world he's still one today that doesn't change if God wrote something in a Torah and he gave it to us 3,335 years ago 34 years ago and he says this Torah is forever forever includes today even if you disagree with it even if you dislike it even if you say never again even if you decide you're a bird with wet wings whatever it is that your circumstance are that's your problem it doesn't change the truth even if you say you don't know your lack of knowledge doesn't change the truth so when people come out there and publicly state that they believe that they have a new truth the Torah calls those people Megalim Panim Torah. they are distorting the Torah and in essence even if they wear a yarmulke a kippah 
they're considered the enemies of the Torah, even if they are Jews. Now, this is not a new thing. As I mentioned yesterday, there's a very interesting book written about 50 years ago called The History of Zionism. I believe it was written by a non-Jew. I don't think anybody would actually publish it today because it would be viewed as anti-Semitic. But he talks about, in the beginning, he talks about the history, not just of Zionism, he's talking about the history of the Jewish people over the last few hundred years. And approximately 200 years ago, there was something called the Enlightenment Movement, or as they called Askala, which mainly affected European Jewry. And on page 20, uh, on page 17, the author writes that the German Jewish Askala led many Jews away from Judaism. Meaning that this enlightenment was not a friend of Judaism. It actually led people away from it. And this Askala has come under bitter attacks from both Orthodox and Latter-day Jewish National Movement, whereby Mendelssohn, one of the forefathers of the Askala, of which almost all of his kids converted to Christianity, Mendelssohn and his pupils had paved the way for a de-Judaism, for apostasy of individuals, and ultimately for the disappearance of the faith altogether. In so many words, history showed that their plan of enlightenment wasn't an enlightenment of the Jewish people, but rather a strategic plan to destroy Judaism. By teaching them heresy, things that are heretical. But such attacks, says the author, ignore the historical context and therefore usually miss the point. The author now brings a very valid point which I'm about to tell you, is that in so many words he's telling you, wait a minute, yes, they taught heresy, they changed, they distorted, they did all types of things that were not good for Jews, were not good for Judaism. But this didn't happen just by itself one day. Just like the destruction of the Bet Amikdash didn't just happen by itself one day. Hashem didn't just like one day decide, you know what, let me just kill 500 million people. It didn't just happen just like that. Something happened. And happened again. And happened again. And again and again and again. To the point where this enlightenment was actually fueled, magnified, and enabled to destroy a lot of people's lives. What is this thing that happened? Says the author, the great decline in faith 
had set in well before the turn of the century, meaning well before the Enlightenment actually started officially, there was already a major decline in faith. Judaism has been undermined from inside. Daskala was not the cause of the crisis, but its consequence. Orthodox Jews naturally expressed their horror at the progressive Christianization of the synagogues. For this is what it amounted to. Meaning, first you have to understand the reason why people went towards the Ascala instead of going towards the synagogue, instead of going towards learning the Torah, they went towards things that are against the Torah and eventually to Christianity is because some of these modern shuls, like in Boca Raton synagogue and other types of synagogues, they started bringing missionaries to the synagogue. There was a Christianization of the synagogues. And this Christianization of the synagogues led to a disaster. Don't blame the reform movement because the reform movement, he says, was only a reaction to the chaotic state of religious life. Daskala did not kill religious piety, but on the contrary, it came to restore the dignity of the rabbis in the synagogues whose prestige, according to the 18th century witnesses, had fallen to an all-time low. Prayers were mechanically recited and typically interrupted by social conversations. The exchange of business information was done in the synagogue while the people were praying. And they would even have occasional brawls and fistfights in the synagogue. And such a religion had little attraction for a new generation of educated men and women. The sad truth, which most defenders of traditional Judaism have always been reluctant to face, says the author, that it had become meaningless for many people. This was the age of the decline of traditional religion. Here, the author, which I believe is not Jewish in any way, shape, or form, Walter Lacker is his name, he's saying, from the witnesses that lived at that time, it wasn't that the Enlightenment movement was so unique and amazing that Everybody just decided to leave their Talmud, their Daf Yomi Shiurim, their, 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 their Chumash learning, their Shulchan Aruch learning, and just go to go see what's happening with, with all of these really new, you know, shaved, clean-shaven people. No, didn't happen that way. Certain rabbis decided to take the law on their own hands. They started bringing Christians to the shul. They started bringing all types of foreign speeches to the synagogue. Why? To entertain people. 
they started doing things that were not allowed according to the Torah. Why? Because they wanted to be famous. They wanted to succeed. They wanted to do things to generate a better feedback from people rather than hold strong to the faith that preserved its people they were holding on to the people under all costs even if that meant abandoning the faith even if that meant changing the faith even if that meant invite enemies of the faith and this didn't happen just one time or two times but it literally became a thing and as the rabbis themselves lost interest in Judaism, their congregants followed suit. The prayers became more and more meaningless to them. They would only do it like robots, and eventually they would stop doing it. Their conversations, instead of waiting for those conversations to take place after shul, after you pray, after you learn, they simply decide to just do it whenever. They would actually go to synagogue like some people today literally to socialize i remember that i went to a few shuls and i would literally see people when i would enter the shul they would sit there outside talking to people about politics and all types of other things and then when we finished praying even if it was a long shabbat prayer for a few hours you come back outside or sometimes you go to the bathroom in the middle and you go and you see that people are still standing in the same spot continuing the conversations meaning they never actually entered the actual shul to pray they just simply came to the building to socialize and they would socialize about things that are forbidden to be socialized about in that place and needless to say on that day like discussing business on shabbat but this is not the fault of the people rather the leaders if the leaders are talking in the middle of prayer why wouldn't the followers do the same if the leaders are not really interested in the truth of the Torah and they're willing to change it according to people's likings just to get more likes and to make get more fans and get more donations and get more people to like them then why wouldn't the people do the same thing so we see here that history actually shows that Ascala was a response to people losing interest not in Judaism but in this new brand of Judaism that is nothing like the real Judaism no one ever lost interest in the truth of the Torah once they know the Torah once you know the truth no one can ever lose interest in that no one can ever say I don't believe it anymore if you know the truth you die with the truth it's like a blind person being shown blue for the first time and he can see that color even if you return his blindness the next day he will forevermore remember what blue looks like once you know the truth there is no taking it back so what these people that preceded the holocaust by a hundred years 
what they lost interest in wasn't real Judaism rather the marketing Judaism the Judaism that changes with the times the modernized Judaism the 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 new style of Judaism that's what they lost interest in because even the rabbis lost the interest in but the real serious Talmidei Chachamim they were more glued to Hashem during these times than any other time before because they fought against this this uh, uh, enlightenment and all of this stuff this Askala was literally the enemy of the day and many many tzaddikim made it a key part of their life to fight against it but had we cried enough before this happened we wouldn't have actually had to cry about it today still the point being here is that we see that these new ideas if you will that we see in the world today of no need for there to be a mashiach or that you don't need the torah in order to connect to god you don't need judaism in order to connect to the truth you could just simply believe in god in your own way or there are all endless number of false beliefs is not a new thing but rather history shown that unfortunately it's a repeating offender now why are we here today mourning a building that was destroyed 1955 years ago as we discussed yesterday it's because it was not just a building it was a whole lot more than a building it was our connection to god it was our ability to walk among prophets it was our ability to even attend the school of prophets there was literally a yeshiva for little kids that were prophets nevi'im they would teach them how to prophesy as little kids it was a time where you were able to see miracles out in the open on a regular basis it was a time you connect to hashem in the highest possible way it wasn't a building it was having a kadosh Hu present himself here next to us at all times but yet a kadosh Hu destroyed this place in the process millions upon millions of jews and according to some midrashim literally billions upon billions of jews were murdered in cold blood and i know that this does not make sense to some people because they compare everything they see today to what reality is meaning if it exists today therefore it must be what always has been this is the flaw in history this is the flaw in human logic this is the flaw in trying to rationalize the torah the midrash rabbah echa in chapter one talks about the supernatural status of the jewish people at the time of the Beit mikdash where 
it gives you the number of people in Yerushalayim alone, which of course was through miracle. It wasn't a natural thing because if you look at Jerusalem today, that amount of people could simply, it's not possible for it to fit. And it gives you an exact calculation of how to figure out how many people there were and literally the number of Jewish people in Yerushalayim at this time, just a couple of thousand years ago, was more people than exist in the entire world. Now, of course, you're going to say, yeah, but this could be like a parable or an analogy for something else. Even if you remove a few zeros, you still have an enormous amount of Jewish people, much more than exist in the world today. Why would HaKadosh Baruch Hu destroy all of this? Why? Why destroy your kids if you created the whole world for them? In fact, the Midrash says, and also the Gemara, in Maser Brachot, the first chapter, third page, one of Chachamim, goes to the remains of the Beit HaMikdash to go pray. Like people go to the Kotel today. But back then it wasn't organized and clean like it is today. It was literally a disaster. But it's still a holy place. And he went there to pray. Eliyahu Navi appears to him and says to him, my dear son, why are you here? He says, I'm here to pray. Came to pray. He says to him, did you hear something? Chacham says, yes. I heard a bat call. I heard a heavenly voice roaring in agony. Woe to me that I destroyed and burned my own house. It was an agony that is impossible to explain. Eliyahu Navi says, I swear to you that this is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu has been doing every single day since he destroyed the Bet HaMikdash. You heard the voice of God. Every day he mourns over the destruction of his own house. Now this is incomprehensible. Why did you destroy the Bet HaMikdash and then mourn destroying it? Destroyed millions of your own people and then cry about it that you did it. Just don't do it. Or at least that would the new religionist would say. HaKadosh Baruch Hu has a stamp of truth, meaning the Torah that he created 974 generations before he created the world, talks about that, is not only rules for us 
but it's a rule book for himself of how he's going to run this world. Meaning, he says there are kosher laws, therefore he created kosher and non-kosher animals. Kosher and non-kosher fish. He says that there is family purity, therefore he created the female body with a menstruation, a cycle. He created all types of laws in the Torah and he complies with the Torah in essence because there's a rule book of how he's going to, it's a blueprint of the world. In that blueprint, he says when we sin, he has to punish us. Even though he gives us opportunity to do tshuva and to fix it and to repent, that opportunity to, is not endless. If a person continues to sin over and over again, eventually Hashem has to punish him. And the real punishment for sins is not in this world, but rather in the afterlife. When Hashem brings suffering to anyone in this world, it's simply to direct them in a different direction, to redirect them. To give them a warning shot, if you will. Any Jew that went to the synagogue today, after praying the Arvit prayer, you probably had the rabbi, or at least the cantor in the shul, lead the keynote, and then reading the book of Lamentations, Echa, usually while crying and everyone is sitting on the floor. Now we're not going to go over the entire book of Lamentations, not even half of it, we're simply going to go into a few segments to see what happened. To see what happened. Because the book of Lamentations was written by none other than Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah the prophet, who self-describes himself at the beginning of chapter 3 of Lamentations, as, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of his anger. He has led me and driven me into darkness and not light. Only against me did he turn his hand all day long. Meaning, he is crying at what he has experienced. And he was one of the most righteous, extraordinary prophets that ever lived. He saw the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. He was also the one that was most vocal, warning the Jewish people before the destruction came. So he warned them and saw what kind of sins they were making before the destruction. And then he saw the actual destruction itself and what kind of calamity was brought to the world. The amount of suffering that Jeremiah went through and saw surpassed any other prophets that ever lived. In so many words, as great as Moshe Rabbeinu was in prophecy, you can say that Jeremiah was an expert in suffering. And how much suffering he saw. And Jeremiah is 
not only has the book of Jeremiah, but also the book of Lamentations. And he says as follows. In the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 7, verse number 7 and 8 and moving on, he speaks in the name of God of what's happening here. How are the Jewish people behaving? And he says, Behold, you trust the false statements that are of no use. Can one steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and burn incense to the Baal, and go after the gods of others that you never knew? And then come and stand before me, meaning God, in the Bet HaMikdash, upon which my name is proclaimed, and say, we're saved. In order to continue committing all of these abominations, has this temple upon which my name is proclaimed become a cave of criminals in your eyes? Moreover, behold, I have seen it, the word of Hashem. Here the prophet sums up everything happened in this, you know, back then and in the Enlightenment movement and today in literally just a couple of sentences. The prophet says, someone sold you a bag of goods. Some rabbi, some heretic, some misleader, has sold you a false belief and you are following that false belief as if it's the instructions of Mount Sinai. Where they told you that you can do whatever you want. You can murder, you can steal, you can commit adultery, you could swear falsely, you could even serve an idol like they do in Christianity. Whether it's the Yoshke that died a couple of thousand years ago or all of the other little saints and different things that they have in Catholicism all types of idolatry that's in the world and then after you do all of these different heinous crimes you could just come to the synagogue and then say, oh, okay, so now it's good, right? Everything is finished. We're saved, right? Not because you are doing tshuva. Not because you're actually repenting. But rather because you figure, make all those crimes, do everything, whatever you want. And then as long as you give a little charity, show up once a year for Yom Kippur, or whenever you simply have nothing to do, or in case you're meeting somebody there to talk about business, and that's going to, in so many words, keep you in the loop. You're in the good graces of God. And you think that because you went to synagogue, you think that because you gave a little charity, you can continue your heretical ideology 
you continue your sins, you continue following your lusts and all of your abominations, you continue being married to the same gender, you continue identifying yourself as a bird, you continue doing whatever you want. Just show up to shul once in a while. The prophet Jeremiah says, this is worse than just simply sinning. This is making a mockery of Akadosh Baruch Hu himself and his Torah. Not only are you sinning, but you are in so many words using the system, using the Torah, using the beautiful parts of the Torah in order to sin, instead of in order to get closer to Hashem. Like this Modi character who says, what, I made a big mitzvah. I uh, wrote a Sefer Torah. He uh, wrote a letter in a Sefer Torah. Not realizing that when you declare even a single law in a Torah as irrelevant as something that doesn't matter anymore like he does with his relationship preference, you're considered a mumal, meaning you cannot be counted in a minyan. If you write one letter in a Sefer Torah, the whole Sefer Torah is problematic. You are in a very horrible status of an idol worshiper. Why? Not because of just the relationship bad choices but because of his simple attitude towards the torah that he could simply define it as he wishes the same goes with these other chabadniks that are simply deciding that you don't need to learn torah every day or do mitzvot every day just simply be a decent person don't kill anybody and give charity they've redefined the torah there's no punishment everyone goes to heaven according to them Gehenna is simply some analogy, doesn't actually exist. How do you explain thousands upon thousands of sages that gave clear details of reward and punishment? I have no idea. But apparently, according to them, all of those great sages for the last several thousand years apparently are all wrong. Thousands upon thousands of pages of Torah have been written in the Gemara, in the Zohar, in, 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 in literally every aspect of Judaism, including Hasidim. But according to them, everybody's wrong. Why? Because they decided that there's no suffering and there's no Gehenim and there's no bad. Hashem rewards everyone. Everyone goes to heaven. Everyone will be doing whatever they want in heaven with uh, playing soccer with, uh, with, with the sages. Playing soccer with uh, Avrami Tzachin Yaakov. That's apparently, people believe this nonsense. So, the prophet says, you actually not only sinned, not only stole and murdered, committed adultery, literally, the, this is the first bit the Mikdash is talking about, this is the three cardinal sins. But on top of that, you took the tools that Hashem gave us to repent to do tshuva, to connect to him, and you use them according to your own likings. 
which was to justify your behavior. You came to the temple, the Bet HaMikdash, in order to pacify yourself and your community and say, listen, I showed up, so I'm saved, right? I'm good, nothing bad's going to happen to me. And therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, has this temple become a cave of criminals in your eyes? Meaning, you only came to the Bet HaMikdash to be saved because you just want Hashem to remove the punishment that you're supposed to get for those sins. Remove it because you came, you showed up, you gave a little tzedakah. Remove that punishment you're supposed to get. Why? Not because you're going to change your life. Rather because you're going to go back to being a criminal. You're going to go back to charging people high interest and pretending like you're doing them a favor and you're actually providing a good service. You're going to continue your Ponzi schemes and pretend like you're a really solid investor. You're going to continue your flawed, illegal businesses and pretend like you're actually a good merchant and you just get good prices. And the fact that the products are refurbished is unnecessary to be to tell your actual clients because they want to pay pay you a new price and all types of horrible things that people do you're saved from the punishment for all those things why because you went to shul the prophet says you've turned the temple not just a bit of mikdash you've turned the synagogue into a cave of criminals because really the only reason why you came is because you want Hashem to help you sin more. And you've literally turned the Bet HaMikdash into a cause of your sins, an enabler of the worst and worst sins. And therefore, HaKadosh Baruch says after Detroit, because the Bet HaMikdash, instead of helping you get closer to me, it's actually making you worse. Now, Chachamim asked about this Midrash that, and it's also a Gemara, was a person named Yosef Mishita. I mentioned it to you guys a couple days ago. This Yosef Mishita is described as one of the literally the biggest sinners of the time didn't follow the Torah didn't follow anything and when the Romans came to pillage the Bet HaMikdash to take everything after they killed so many people they were scared of entering the Bet HaMikdash so they were looking for one of the Jews to actually do it but nobody wanted to do it until Yosef Meshita showed up and said, yeah, I'll go. What do you want? What are you going to give me if I go inside? said, whatever you grab is yours. Just go first. In so many words, Yosef Meshita went to the Bet HaMikdash to steal. He went there to steal. But yet when he came out with the menorah and they told him, listen, you can't, you have to go back again. He told them, no. I'm not going to go back again. I've already angered my God once. All of a sudden, he became this righteous person. Wait a minute. Just a minute ago, you were a thief. 
You were about, you were literally excited to steal from the house of God. Now you're upset and crying and are willing to die and are going to die because you angered God. Where would he just changed everything? How did this happen? Chachamim say, when he went inside the Bet HaMikdash, the Bet HaMikdash, even though there's all this destruction, death, and so on, the Bet HaMikdash is still holy. And literally, it sanctified him. He came in there, Rasha, he left the Tzaddik. And he was completely careless about the fact that they were cutting him to pieces and killing him because he was in the process of doing tshuva for angering God. So entering the Bet HaMikdash sanctified you. So the Chachamim asked the question, how is it that Yosef Meshita, the thief that went to the Bet HaMikdash to steal, got affected in some a positive way, became righteous literally in two seconds, but yet the generation here that Jeremiah is talking about, they didn't get affected. Why didn't they get affected? Why did they get purified? He came there to steal. He didn't come there to become purified, but he left pure. They came there to make more sins. And therefore, the Bet HaMikdash couldn't help them. He went there simply to take some material. He had no concept of what the Bet HaMikdash can do, not to, no connection. He was like a secular Jew today. No idea what's right or left. But he comes to one Shiur Torah, he clicks on one of the videos, all of a sudden transforms his entire life. I'm going to keep Shabbat. I'm going to protect my breed. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Yeah, but what? You just watch one video. Yeah, that's enough. The new podcast that we have coming out on Motzei Shabbat, this young kid literally did tshuva after watching one of our videos. A 30-minute video changed his entire life. One video he watched, he did tshuva on the spot. Literally, a precious neshama doesn't need that much help. Once it sees the truth, that's it. That's all it needs. So how come all of these other thieves and murderers and, and, and rapists and adulterers didn't get affected? That's because they did know what the Bet HaMikdash was, can do, but they were not interested. They were simply looking to manipulate the system. They knew that there are people learning Torah. They knew that there's miracles. They knew that there's a tradition. There's a lacha. There's the truth. They knew everything. But they weren't interested in anything else other than their own desires. And they simply wanted to use the Torah in order to fit their lusts. They weren't looking to fit into the Torah. They weren't looking to utilize the Torah for good, to grow with the Torah, to get closer to God. They were simply looking to take it as a tool to make more crimes. That's why it didn't affect them. When a person has a distorted ideology that is 
against the Torah, it's much, much worse than someone who doesn't know anything. It's much worse. Because someone who doesn't know anything is like an empty vessel. All you got to do is provide it something to fill up that vessel, give him some water to fill up that vessel, some Torah is compared to water, give him some Torah to fill that vessel, and you have yourself a full vessel. But someone that has a distorted new definition of the Torah where an abomination all of a sudden becomes a mitzvah, a sin is all of a sudden no longer a sin, a major principle of our faith is no longer relevant, and all types of things that are forbidden becomes permitted, and whatever is permitted is now forbidden, this is much worse, because in order to fix such a thing, you first have to uproot everything that exists before you put anything good and true. Because if you put a lot of truth on top of all of those lies, all you're going to have is just a bigger mess. And that's why it's much, much more difficult to help those people. Now, why are those people not interested in the truth? The Chachamim say that these people came to the Bet HaMikdash in order to utilize it to make more sins with complete confidence. They were very sure of themselves despite their sins. They didn't want to be scared. In fact, they hated anything that Jeremiah said to them because he was the scary rabbi. They just simply wanted to show lip service. Just show up, make a blessing, give some tzedakah, and just listen, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm good now. That's enough for me. Yeah, but what about actually keeping Shabbat? No, I'm not ready yet. What do you mean not ready? You're 45 years old. When are you going to be ready? When you're 90? Oh, yeah, maybe. Who says you're going to live till 90? Who's going to live till next week? Listen, don't worry. God loves me. He understands me. And all types of distorted ideologies that are many times supported by some type of heretic that's leading them and misleading them. And there are literally people out there today making videos in the name of Judaism, the name of the, their teachers, saying that anything that scares you must be against the Torah. You can't scare people. You can't rebuke them. Everything that you, that's Judaism must always be only good and fun and happy and that's it. Well, how do they explain what we're about to read? The Chachamim say that these people wanted to just show up there in order to make more sins. And therefore, they would enter the place, they would enter the Bet HaMikdash without any shame. And displayed no fear whatsoever of the temple or of God, says the Dat Sofrim. Just like bandits who hide in a cave 
for these unscrupulous Jews would find refuge in their insincere temple service and offerings. And the Mari Kara says that a tradition that there was a cave in the Bet Mikdash where the Kohanim would go and bring their uh, Kobanot, their Koban Tamid in order to serve Hashem and be viewed favorably. And when the this generation was so corrupt that they would actually bring their idol in those caves. Meaning that when there is no shame about your behavior, there's certainly no fear of Hashem, there's no reverence of Hashem, and of course there's no love of Hashem, there's just love of yourself. So the prophet here is telling us this is what it looked like before the destruction. This is what it looked like. In Megillat Echa, the book of Lamentations, the prophet Jeremiah gives the outcome of this. And he says, in chapter 2, verse number 3, he burned through Yaakov like a flaming fire, consuming on all sides. He bent his bow like an enemy. His right hand poised like a foe. He slew all who were pleasant to the eye. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he poured out his wrath like a fire. Here, the prophet Jeremiah is talking about how God himself acted like an enemy. And for those who say, no, maybe it doesn't say God. It says he. Maybe he's referring to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe he's referring to some other soldier. So that's when you continue reading. Verse number five. It says, The Lord became like an enemy. He consumed Israel, he consumed all her citadels. He destroyed its fortresses. He increased within the daughter of Yehudah agony and grief. So for those stubborn ones that want something literal, they got literal. You simply need to read on. Akadosh Baruch Hu showed us he doesn't love you no matter what. He doesn't accept you no matter what. Quite the opposite. Akadosh Baruch Hu, when the time runs out for you to do tshuva, and you choose not to do tshuva, you choose not to repent, not to go in the right path, you decide that you're an enemy of God because you change the Torah, you disregard the Torah. And therefore, in Parashat Vayet Hanan, which is this week's parasha, 
משה רבנו says, הקדוש ברוך הוא משלם אל שונאיו, אל פניו לעבידו. השם pays his haters to their face in order to destroy them. Who are his haters? Those that do not observe the Torah and mitzvot. Those that ignore them. Those that disregard them. Those that distort them. They become the enemies of God. And here Jeremiah says, this is what it looks like when God treats you like you're his enemy. Hashem destroyed the enemy. He destroyed those that were pleasant to the eye. What's those that were pleasant to the eye? This is referring to even the ones that were tzaddikim. Because when there is a national decree of punishment, both righteous and wicked get punished. If there's an individual punishment, there's an individual punishment. But if the entire generation is wicked, meaning people are wicked and no one wants to change, and the righteous are not doing enough to change them, and there has to be an involvement from above, everyone gets punished. And that's what happened here at the Bet HaMikdash. It says that he slew all who were pleasant to the eye, which is referring to the righteous people, the Sanhedrin, and even the children were taken and smashed over rocks, murdered in cold blood, why? Because of the murderers, because of the rapists, because of the pedophiles, because of all of the other sinners. Not because the little kids sinned, but because they were part of this generation. Of course, there's really no kid in Judaism. Everything, everyone is a soul that has been here for a long time and just simply reincarnating until it completes its tikkun. Or it gets destroyed, or it goes to heaven. But the point is, is that here during this generation of evil, HaKadosh Baruch Hu punished the righteous and the wicked, the little kids and the adults, the rabbis and the heretics. The Lord became like an enemy. The prophet Jeremiah continues in verse number 13, Chapter 2, he says, In agony and crying, with what shall I bear witness for you? To what can I compare you, or daughter of Yerushalayim? To what can I liken you, that I may comfort you, O maiden daughter of Zion? Your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Here the prophet is in so many words telling us this calamity, this disaster that happened to the Jewish people just a couple of thousand years ago is unlike anything else that any other people ever endured, not before or after. The magnitude of the damage is beyond comprehension. Now I know that some people believe the disaster that happened to them 
whether it's the slavery of the black people a few hundred years ago here in America, or it's what happened to the uh, American Indians here in America, or it's what happened to the Russians in Russia with under Stalin, or what happened to the Jews 75 years ago in the Holocaust, or all of the other things that you can say that happened throughout all of history. The prophet says, in the name of God, nothing can compare to what happened to the Jewish people. Nothing. Not before or after. Now, why is it hard for people to understand that? Because they don't understand how great the Jewish people were at that time. The amount of Jewish people in Yerushalayim alone was greater than all of the people that live in the world today. I know this is impossible for people to comprehend, but again, remember, we're not in a natural world status here. This is God running the world and God makes the rules. Furthermore, you had literally prophets walking among men, people that talk to God on a regular basis and he talks back to them. You had people that were able to control angels and tell them how to manipulate nature. Like the uncle of Jeremiah that literally lifted all of Jerusalem in the air. All types of angels that were able to do all whatever you want them to do. Some of the Chachamim talk about, you know, some of the things that Shlomo HaMelech did when he was alive. It's common knowledge that Shlomo HaMelech had an enormous eagle where he would fly on this eagle all over the world like people fly on a plane. But what a lot of people don't know is that this Shlomo HaMelech and his eagle were not just flying into this world. He was also able to go into a different world by taking his neshama out of his body and going into the upper worlds. Things that only people that are extraordinary Kabbalists and Sadiqim and that are learned in this subject were able to do throughout all of history. The things that were standard back then are not even in legends today. Literally, the, if, if, if somebody would simply read how the world was at the time of the Bet HaMikdash, they would see that all of the movies, with all of their exaggerations and all of their creativity, do not compare to even a single day of living at the time of the Bet HaMikdash. The entire world was afraid of the Jewish people because they all knew this is a not a normal people. And that's why when this destruction happened, the entire world knew about it. Just think about it. How big the map is. How big the world is. Why would anybody care that this tiny little country Needless to say, the tiny city within the country, Jerusalem, is prospering or is destroyed. Why would anybody in Turkey, 
in Russia, in America, in Spain, in Germany, wherever they are in the world, why would they even care about their existence? Exactly. The significance of Yerushalayim was of national, of, of, of worldly importance knowledge. Everyone knew. So when the destruction happened, it didn't just become the news. It was the only thing that anyone talked about. It was the only thing that anyone wrote about. It was the only thing that anyone talked about for literally decades. So the prophet says, this destruction is of such enormity, no one can heal you other than God himself because he's the only one that could create such a destruction. He's the only one that could fix such a destruction. But why would he fix it? Why would he fix it? First, we have to, the prophet says, identify why it happened. We said you were sinners. We said you made all types of crimes, but why did you go in those ways? Why? Says the prophet Jeremiah in the next verse, verse 14 of chapter 2. Your prophets envisioned for you vanity and foolishness and they did not expose your iniquity to bring you back in repentance they envisioned for you oracles of vanity and deception here the prophet jeremiah says your prophets not the prophets meaning you chose false leaders because you didn't want to hear the message of truth that I gave you. You didn't want to hear the message of truth of Zachariah. You murdered him. You didn't want to hear the message of truth from any of the righteous prophets. You wanted to, fo- to follow the message of friendliness. The message of nice things to say. The message of all types of tricks of how to beat the system where you could sin on a regular basis but if you donate here or if you pray some special prayer there you could just continue being a complete wicked person and these prophets that you chose they fed into your vanity you wanted the prophet that would simply tell you not that you're a sinner or that you're a thief and that you're stealing from customers and that your business is against the Torah and that you should do tshuva. No, you wanted a prophet to tell you what kind of prayer should you do or can he do for you even so you can make more money and build another castle and buy another five or ten wigs for your wife. Or uh, perhaps buy a bigger diamond ring because the last one is only the size of the equator. It's not big enough. You wanted somebody to tell you about how to make more money. You wanted a prophet for your foolishness. 
You wanted somebody to come with you to watch the basketball game, to be your friend. Hey, Rabbi, come on, you want to go to a baseball game together? Baseball game? How about learning Torah? Nah, come on, no. I got front row tickets uh, for the Super Bowl. You coming? Yeah, I'm coming. Can't miss it. Can I bring my family? Yeah, bring everybody. I got the whole suite. You want the rabbi that goes to the football games. You want the rabbi that goes to the hockey games. You want a friend. Jeremiah says, you got a friend. But in reality, that friend ended up killing you. Because he didn't tell you that you were sinning. He didn't tell you that your wife is not modest. He didn't tell you that you're going to lose everything as a result of your corrupt business practices. Because he was your friend. And he fed into your vanity, fed into your foolishness. And he did not expose your iniquity, says the prophet Jeremiah, to bring you back in repentance. You went to the rabbi that told you a bunch of nice things only. He didn't tell you that if you don't do tshuva, you're going to go to Gehenom and not come out. He didn't tell you that if you continue desecrating Shabbat, you'll be considered an idol worshiper in the eyes of God. And idol worshippers go to Gehenom and never come out. There's a special level for them. It's called Madol Shri'i. The seventh chamber. He didn't tell you that you being married to a non-Jewish woman is going to destroy both of your eternities. He didn't tell you that. Why? Because he was your friend. He was the rabbi that was always friendly. He was always accepting. He even invited you to his house on Shabbat every week, even though he knows that you drive on Shabbat to his house. And he tells you, why didn't you come last week? Oh, Rabbi, no, I didn't want to drive. It was Shabbat, you know. Nah, come on, you just come. What are you going to be a Shabbat by yourself? Drive, come to my house. Don't worry about it. He invited you to shul. He invited you to come eat, even though he knows you're desecrating Shabbat. Why? He's your friend. Jeremiah says, you picked that friend. You picked that false prophet. You picked that false prophet that told you that there's no judgment. You picked that false prophet that distorted the Torah. You picked that false prophet that tells you that you have to believe in some dead rabbi, that he is God, or he is a Mashiach, or he's going to save you for some reason. You picked it. You picked it. If your rabbi, if your leader, is not leading you to do tshuva, is not leading you to repent, he's a false leader. Rav Elchanan Vaslamit, Hashem Yikom Damo, who was one of the millions of people that were murdered in the Holocaust, in his Sefer Ikveta de Meshicha, where he talks about everything that's happening at the time before the Holocaust, predicting that the Holocaust is going to come. Nearly a third of that book, which we did a whole series on, called Era of Mashiach. Nearly a third of that book, Rav Wasserman cries out to the Jewish people because they're following the false shepherds. Why is he calling the leaders of the generation shepherds? 
Whereas the prophet Jeremiah is calling the leaders prophets, false prophets. Because the word ro'eh, ro'eh is also synonymous with prophet, but it's also spelled similar to the word see, ro'eh, he sees. The prophets see things that other people don't see. But it also sounds the same as ro'eh, which means shepherd. Because the prophets, the leaders, the shepherds, those that see, their job is the same. You are supposed to lead people to the right direction. You the leader, you the prophet, you the shepherd. Are you the one that simply sees things that obviously other people don't see? Your job is to lead them in the right direction. And therefore the extraordinary tzaddik, Rav the Talmud Muvak of the Chafetz Chaim, cries out to, a pe- to the people. Nearly 30% of the book is about the wicked, false shepherds of the generation that preceded the Holocaust that made so much noise that they led to a near annihilation of the entire people because those very same people ignored the truth of the good shepherds, the Jeremiah's of the generation. Jeremiah warned the people before the Holocaust. They threw him in a dungeon. They beat him up. They didn't want to hear. But how did they have the audacity to beat up a prophet? To throw him in a dungeon? To nearly kill him? Because the false prophets, anytime they feel threatened, anytime they feel like someone is going to ruin their gig, is going to ruin their investment account, of everybody giving them money for all types of false reasons, they become aggressive. They empower the people to go against the righteousness to go against the truth and they start doing all types of things to fight against the truth because the truth and falsehood cannot coexist in peace it's impossible because even if you're on the side of truth and you just want to live your life the falsehood will not allow it to happen will not allow it to happen. They have to attack. And this is why the greatest sages of all time have always followed in the footsteps of Jeremiah and the, the, the big prophets, which is, don't be on the defending side, be on the aggressive side. Fight against the falsehood before they fight you. Expose them before they attack you with a knife in the back pretending to be your friend. So the prophet Jeremiah says that you, you are the ones that are at fault for following these false prophets instead of following the truth. How would they have known that they're false prophets? Everyone knew that they're false prophets because they're simply only telling people good things. They didn't warn you about the consequences of your evil ways. You knew that what you were doing was against the Torah. 
but you wanted somebody to give you a good commentary on it of why it's good anyway. Yeah, but you stole in business. Yeah, but he gave tzedakah. Yeah, but you raped that woman. Yeah, but uh, at least he gave her some money to go uh, pay rent. Yeah, but uh, you uh, you did terrible things in that community. Yeah, but don't forget about the donations that he made. Yeah, but you're considered an abomination according to the Torah. Yeah, but he puts on tefillin. This is what you were looking for? This is what you think is righteousness to find the good and the evil? No, that's not righteousness. That's enabling the evil to be even more evil. Kafschut, giving somebody the benefit of the doubt, does not mean that you see them as good when they're evil. People have to understand that Kafschut does not mean to view everyone as good even when they're evil. Because there is an obligation to protest against evil and to rebuke the evil. The prophet Jeremiah says, you are not looking for that. You are looking for someone that's going to kosher the pig. That's what you're looking for. Those prophets that you chose, whom you believed in, they were considered false prophets because they whitewashed, says the Rama. They whitewashed your sins. Soothing you into self-righteousness by indulging in deceptive oracles. You are a thief and everyone knew it. But they told you, listen, you give tzedakah. Nobody gives tzedakah like you. You were a womanizer, an adulterer, pedophile. But they said, yeah, but you're a good person at heart. You don't mean to sin. You just have this taiva. You're an abomination, according to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, in multiple places in the Torah. Yeah, but they really love each other. You're empowered by not just your own sins and lust, but even by finding the false prophets, the false leaders, to enable you by whitewashing your sins. And making you think that you're actually much more righteous than you are. To the point where you turn your sins into good deeds. Only in your imagination, of course. But you say that it's in a Torah too. These false prophets, says the Alshi HaKadosh, also told you never again. Yes, we've been hurt before, but never again. In the times of Jeremiah, these false prophets told people never again, Nebuchadnezzar, never going to come. He's not going to attack us. He can't handle us. We have a weapon system. We have Giborim. Nebuchadnezzar has nothing on us. This is no different than the false leaders of today. In the Israeli government, the Netanyahu's and the Bennett's and the other Reshaim out there, Never again. No one can do anything to us. We're not going to let it happen. What are you, 
a little mini God, who decides whether you live or die? Who decides if you even are able to go to the bathroom, you little nothing? Never again. Most arrogant, disgusting ideology in a secular world is to think that you can control destiny by simply saying a statement. And making people believe that this is something you're supposed to support. Never again. How about, why did it happen? And let's make sure we don't do that so it doesn't happen again. Give people a diagnosis and not a phantom cure. Rashi says, they chose the leaders that did not rebuke people openly. Meaning even when they rebuked, they rebuked in such a quiet, hush-hush way, such a symbolic way, even the sinner didn't know what they're talking about. The guy is a taiva. The whole world knows that he is one of those people that wants to be the husband and the wife. And instead of the rabbi telling him, listen, it's an abomination, it's against the Torah, you're going to go to Gehenna. He says, you know, there are some people, they have these desires and they have to, you know, control themselves. But of course, they could be born with it. And perhaps if they're born with it, maybe they uh, just need to pray about it. And that way... Uh, they, they, they won't be. Uh, so, uh, you know, people are looking, what, what is he talking about? What are you saying? Oh, don't worry, Hashem knows. Hashem knows, but none of the sinners know. Stop talking symbolically. You're in a generation of ignoramuses that don't even understand the basics. And you're speaking in analogies. Speak clearly, aloud, not aloud. Good, evil. Go, don't go. Mitzvah, sin. You know, this, this is just simple basics. People do not know. You have people learning names of the upper world before they learn the basics of how to keep Shabbat. Oh yeah, you know... I, uh, I'm connecting to the Malchut and the, the... What? Do you know how to keep Shabbat? Do you know how to keep Shabbat? Yeah, don't you like, uh, you know, like, turn all the lights off once? No, no, you don't turn all the lights off. No, we're not, we're not vampires. But somehow you know the names of the upper worlds and you think you're like a little mini Kabbalist. And it's not your fault. It's your leader's fault. Your fault is choosing that leader. His fault is for being that leader. And Rashi says they did not openly rebuke. And some, Rashi says, simply pretended like you're not sinning. 
which is very common today. How many people become enemies of the Torah not because they have a problem with God, but rather because they have a problem with wicked Jews that pretend to be religious. Where they have a person that's a known pedophile, a known rapist, a known adulterer, a known filthy, disgusting piece of garbage, living in the community and sometimes even being a rabbi, sometimes even being some important person in the eyes of some people, and he's causing all types of damages, but he's protected by the community. And the victims, they're shunned. No, don't report them to the police. Yeah, but he's going to continue doing this to more kids. No, no, we'll take care of it. We'll take care of it 15 years already. He's still doing it. He's still, he's still the principal of the school. He's still doing it. Hiding behind this. You go to different people, can you help me out? Can you, can you expose this guy? Can you tell the community to kick him out? No, listen, we don't get involved. You know, we don't want to, you know, we have our own way that we do things. Or when we cry out to the public, we cry out to different big rabbis and organizations and so-called uh, institutions that supposedly care about the Jewish people. We tell them, listen, there's some wicked people that pretend to be rabbis that have somehow convinced thousands of people to follow them and they're bringing idol worshiping Christian missionaries to a Jewish synagogue. Can you help us? Can you write a letter? Can you sign our letter? We'll even write it for you. You could just simply sign it that you are against this. We're not going to put words in your mouth. You're against it, right? Yes. Okay, can you sign that you're against it? Oh, you know, we don't really like to write letters and really make a whole public statement. And you know, maybe they're not going to listen anyway. Who asked you about whether they're going to listen or not? Who asked you if you're anything? Asked you, are you against it? Yes, sign off that you're against it. Make what you're, you're, what you're saying you believe, make that a public statement. So other people can see that there are big rabbis and big organizations that are against this distortion of the Torah, this danger to the community. What's the problem? You don't have a problem publicizing your opinion about who should be the president of some country you don't even live in. You don't have a problem giving your political opinion even though you're not a politician. You don't have a problem talking about a bunch of things you have nothing to do with and you can't do anything about. But the one thing that's your job, because supposedly you're a rabbi, supposedly you're a head of a rabbinical organization and people donate millions of dollars to all of these places, why don't you represent the Jewish people when they're at the time of need, which is when they need to know what's the truth and what's falsehood. Oh, you know, listen, I'm a little older now, so I don't know if I really want to get it. Who asked you your age? I asked you if you believe or you don't believe. Do you speak the language? Everyone is scared. In a generation of scared people, destructions happen. How many times do I get messages from a wonderful people around the world? Some of them big rabbis. They tell me, Chazaku Baruch, Chazak much for being the voice of truth. And every time I get those messages, I become more sad. 
Not happy. Why? Why am I the only one here? Why are there hundreds of major Rabbanim and organizations fighting for the truth publicly, not behind the scenes? That's what Rashi's crying about. Rashi's crying about that even when they bring the rebuke, they bring it in such a way that no one even understands. And most of the time, they simply pretend like the sin is not happening, the pedophile is not there, the crooked, corrupt person is not there. Enough representing the Jewish people in distorted ways, represent the truth for what it is. If something's allowed, it's allowed. If it's forbidden, it's forbidden. Stop hosting the metoavim, all of these abominations, and pretend like we have to somehow, you know, welcome everybody no matter what. There is no permission, according to the Torah, to welcome enemies. No permission whatsoever. No permission whatsoever to welcome people that declare war against God and His Torah in the streets and the media. No permission for such things. But yet today you have Rabbi, uh, head rabbi of, of England, Mirvis, Shem Reshaim Yerkav, making one public statement after another of how we have to change the Torah suddenly. Suddenly because he became another shepherd for a community of blind people that allowed him to do that. We could change the Torah according to uh, the, uh, the new Moshe. Change the Torah. Allow what's forbidden. Rashi says, pretending that the sins are invincible or making the sin as if it's not a big deal or rebuking in such a way that no one even understands. This brought disaster and this will continue bringing disaster. The Sha'ar Chaim says that even the prophets that did rebuke the people didn't really do it because they were looking to change the people. They were simply doing it just to fulfill their responsibility. But didn't follow up to make sure that people actually changed. And needless to say, says the Sha'ar Chaim, they didn't trace the roots of the sins in order to devise strategies for the repentance. Meaning, they just said, listen, you're not allowed to keep, you're not allowed to break Shabbat. You're not allowed to uh, be intermarried. You're not allowed to do this, not allowed to do that. But in reality, they didn't help you. They didn't guide you. You asked them, listen, I understand that uh, I have to, you know, live in a Jewish community and everything, but I need to send my kid to yeshiva, but I can't afford the yeshiva. It's $1,500 a month. I can't. I, I make $2,000 a month, $3,000 a month. I can't. So can the community help me? Can you talk to the school? Maybe they can allow my kid to go until things change for me. No, it's okay. Send him to public school for now. That's what some people say. Send the kid to public school for now. Why? You can't afford to be religious. That's not a rabbi. That's not a leader of a community. That's a person that says one thing to the public and does something else on the others. Why? Because it's, it's, the reality is, Rabbutai, 
If we're not going to help people, give somebody else the job. Give somebody else the job. If you have the ability to help somebody, and that's it's the, something that you are in position to help them, that's your job. I'm not saying help them with everything, even if something is not relevant to you and you have no idea how to help. Talk about something that's your job. You are rabbi of a community. You are uh, uh, managing money for for uh, you know for for certain donors that want to you know do certain things with it. Whatever you are doing, do your job. Do your job. You're in a rabbinical association of some kind. No. Be a rabbi. Teach the truth. Tell people to teach the truth. Go against the Rashaim, the, the enemies. Stop being politicians. Every rabbi today wants to be a politician or a uh, YouTuber or a superstar in Hollywood. Everyone wants to befriend all types of people that have a lot of views. Stop it. Stop with this fame chasing. Help the people, Ibonosho Alam. Help the people. A disaster is near. The prophet Jeremiah continues and says when we don't help the Jewish people, the calamity happens. We pacify the people instead of teaching them to change. Instead of teaching them the truth, teaching them to do tshuva, disaster happens. prophet tells the people a wall of the daughter of Zion this is in verse 18 chapter 2 shed tears like a river day and night give yourself no respite do not let the apple of your eye be still arise cry out at night in the beginning of the watches pour out your heart like the water in the presence of the Lord lift up your hands to him for the life of your young children who swoon from hunger at every street corner here the prophet tells us don't wait for the leaders to change cry for them to change cry to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. every Jew should be crying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu tonight, tomorrow, and every night to help us. Not to help you buy another house. Not to help you buy another car. Not to help you buy another diamond ring or expand your business. To help us go in the right direction. To help us and send us righteous leaders that are going to lead us in the right way so we can avoid the next disaster, so we can be saved before the next Holocaust. Don't wait for the change to happen. Cry to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Cry. The Chobot HaLevavot says, this is referring to the Tikkun Chatzot, the nighttime prayer, where a person is supposed to clear their mind of all of their worldly thoughts 
and just simply connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Targum says this is a perfect opportunity to remind you about the value of learning Torah at night. As the special Siyat Dishmaya for the Torah that a person studies at night. The Gemara in Masechet Tamid, page 32b, says that a person that studies Torah at night, the Divine Presence will be in front of him during the day. Cry to HaKadosh Baruch Hu to clean your heart. Clean your heart from all of the addictions. The addictions to all types of lust. Cry to HaKadosh Baruch Hu to clean your heart and your mind from all of these desires. To materialism. To things that are forbidden. Cry to HaKadosh Baruch Hu to clean your mind from all the filth that you watched in your life and you remember all of the falsehood that you've learned. Cry to HaKadosh Baruch Hu to remove these desires for you to be like the nations. Stop crying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for more money. Stop crying to HaKadosh Baruch Hu for more materialism. If you cry to HaKadosh Baruch Hu to elevate you spiritually, you can be sure that it'll also take care of you financially and otherwise. But if you cry for him to help you simply with materialism, you could be certain that you're not going to get closer to God. When a person prays to Hashem many times, they ask for nachat. When they're young and they just had kids, they want nachat from the kids. Peace of mind from the kids and they grow up and they're good. When the kids grow up a little more and you have to send them to school, to yeshiva, and you see how big the bill is, they say, oh, nachat with panasah, I want to have enough money to do this, that, and the other thing. And then as a person gets a little older and, you know, the body doesn't work like it used to. You say, Nachat for health. I want to have good health. Nachat with health. Nachat, Nachat, Nachat. Now, while all of those things are good, at the very least, we should all add Nachat, Nachat, with our connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Kirvat Hashem Litov. Nachat with Kirvat Hashem Litov. Nachat that are closest to HaKadosh Baruch Hu will bring us good, will make us feel good, will make us want to do more. Kirvat Hashem Litov. As David HaMelech says in Tehilim, chapter 73, verse 28, Kirvat Hashem Litov. It doesn't mean that Everything is good because as you can see, millions and millions of people died here. That's not exactly a good thing. But rather that HaKadosh Baruch Hu turns everything that he does, ultimately, there's a good to it. There's good to it. Ultimately, it's the best option out of all options that are available. The ultimate good doesn't necessarily mean that you will benefit from it. We have to ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu to have Nachat Elokit. We have 
not only Nachat, where our connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu keeps getting stronger and stronger, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu has Nachat from our behavior. He's happy with the way we're acting. He's happy with the way we're serving Him. Not that Hashem is subject to feelings, but this is how we describe it in the world of, in the world of Torah. And not fake Nachat. Nachat that depends on materialism. Nachat that depends on how many likes you have on your most recent post. Nachat that depends on how many people show up to your weekend parties. That's fake. Have Nachat. Real Nachat. Rabbi Yaakov Emden says the greatest sin of all in our time and he lived a couple of hundred years ago is that we stopped mourning properly over Yerushalayim and he says that the punishment for this is that it led to the exile lasting as long as it has because we're not mourning meaning that all the persecution all of the tragedies, all of the Holocaust, the disasters, is because instead of mourning the destruction, mourning over the separation we have from Hashem and His Torah, we're mourning our lack of physical desires being satiated. We're mourning a bunch of different things that are not really the purpose of life. We have to start looking at things a little differently. Start investing in Olam Abba, not just Olam Azeh. Because when a person invests just in this, in this world, they're putting themselves in a situation where the connection between them and Hashem can get to a point where it's like something numb where after a while you forget it even exists many times people they can go to shul they can pray they can even learn Torah but forget about the connection between them and God Forget about their responsibility for their fellow Jew, of how they're responsible for their fellow Jew to get closer to God also. Forget of their responsibility to simply view their life as not just a life that only has to do with themselves, but a life that, a life that has to do with Klal Yisrael, meaning that the next mitzvah or sin that you make could influence the entire nation. It could either lead to us being saved miraculously from some tragedy or another terrorist attack. That next sin or next mitzvah could lead either to a tragedy or a miracle. That Jew that's disassociated from Judaism, that's disconnected from Judaism, He's in your path, he's your responsibility. 
Yeah, but I don't know what to say. You don't need to know what to say anymore. Just give them a USB with our lectures on there. Send them a link. Everybody knows how to invite people to eat food, but apparently nobody knows how to help people get closer to Hashem. It's time that we all took our lives a little more seriously. Stop following all of these false prophets that every other day they're inventing a new religion. Every other day there's a new mentality, a new philosophy, a new new kid on the block with a new uh, ideology. But he calls it Judaism. He calls it good. The only thing that's good, Kilvat Hashem Litov. Getting close to Hashem is good. But getting close to Hashem means that you know who Hashem is. Hashem is the one that provides good, but also Hashem is the one that when you're his enemy and you don't follow his Torah, as the prophet Jeremiah says, Hashem acts like an enemy. Hashem acts like an enemy to those that disregard his Torah, to those that distort his Torah. So much so, the prophet says that the women that did not follow the Torah, that did not live in a time where righteousness was standard, but rather wickedness was, they were punished along with everybody else. So much so that the famine led them to eat their own fruit, their own offspring. And a person needs to know that this too is from God. Why? Because the Torah is an instruction set of how to live. And an instruction set, when you don't follow it, there's a problem that causes an impact everywhere. If you were building something that had a hundred steps to build this one thing, anyone that's built Legos or, or engines or anything in their life knows what I'm talking about. Even if you build a table, a desk, you see it has 30, 40 steps. If you miss one of those steps, the whole thing is different. It's either unstable or it doesn't work or all types of other. If one step on that desk, on that chair, on that computer, on anything that you're building, one thing is done incorrectly, it's skipped, the whole thing is at jeopardy. It's time we view the Torah in the same exact capacity. Where I'm not saying that Hashem expects us to be perfect. He knows what He created. He knows we're going to make mistakes and therefore He created tshuva. But tshuva is for mistakes. Because you didn't know. Because you had a hard time overcoming until you did overcome. Because you tried and failed until you tried and succeeded. Tshuva is for that. It's not for somebody who just simply says, this law doesn't matter anymore. 
this law doesn't apply to me anymore. This law is no longer relevant. This law is outdated. Chuba doesn't apply to those people. Those people, when they brought a Kurban to Beit HaMikdash, the Kurban was rejected. It was considered pigul. A person needs to know that Hashem knows we're going to make mistakes. He expects us to make mistakes. But mistakes are a world of difference from rejection. Rejection of the law, rejection of the Torah, distortions of the Torah makes a person an enemy of the Torah. Whereas mistakes, you forgot a Shabbat, so you turn on the light. You didn't read the whole book, so you didn't realize this applied or that didn't apply. Mistakes are expected. Nobody is perfect. But rejections, distortions of the law, altering the law, that, Rabotai, is unacceptable. Not just in the eyes of God, but even in the eyes of the creation. You know that if you were a boss, and you had employees, and you were paying their salaries. In so many words, you were feeding them and their kids. And you told them, here, I have these 100 steps for you to do the job that I'm paying you to do. And the person comes back with a completely different job. You told them, listen, I want you to follow these 100 steps and make me a blue suit with black stripes and gold buttons. And he comes back to you with a t-shirt and a hat that says, go Trump. And where, where's my suit? He goes, no, no, I got you this instead. What do you mean? I asked you for a suit. I gave you $2,000 to buy me a suit. Yeah, I know, but I spent 2000 on this. $2,000 for a t-shirt and a hat? Well, no, not really. I spent about 50 bucks on this and I donated the rest of the money to the Trump campaign because the billionaire doesn't have enough money. Wait, hold on a second. You took my $2,000 and you donated to some campaign and you bought me a hat and a t-shirt instead of buying me a suit? Yeah, isn't that cool? No, you're fired. Why, why being so mean? Why, 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 why being so mean? Why are you prejudiced? Why are you racist? Why are you sexist? Why are you ist, 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 against ist? What do you mean? You didn't do your job. You didn't do your job. I paid you to do a job. You didn't do the job. You did something else. Well, at least I bought something. Isn't that good enough? No, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. If you don't follow the instructions, just doing anything you want, doesn't make up for it. I told you to make me a suit, to buy me a suit. You bought a t-shirt and a hat. That's not good enough. Every normal human being will understand that. Akadosh Baruch Hu told you marry men with women, Jews and Jews, Gentiles and Gentiles. Akadosh Baruch Hu told you follow the Torah. We say, well, listen, I know I intermarried, but at least I got married. No, it doesn't work. I know I, uh, you know, I, I didn't follow everything, but uh, 
At least I put on to fill in. At least I keep Shabbat. Yeah. So, on, when you're in Gehenom, they'll turn off the fire on Shabbat. That's it. But you're still going to Gehenom because you didn't follow the Torah. And it's not that you didn't follow the Torah because you made a mistake. You didn't follow the Torah because you simply rejected it. You just simply said, listen, I want to be an abomination. I want to do all types of things that are forbidden in the Torah. I don't care. But I'll simply bribe God with whatever I am doing. He could just live with it. He could just accept me as I am. Now you know that you yourself would never tolerate such behavior from somebody that you're paying, somebody that you're giving food to eat. What makes you think that the king of kings that gives you air to breathe, food to eat, and literally every second that you exist is a miracle, what makes you think that he needs you in any way, shape, or form so much that he needs you that he's simply just going to live with you disregarding his law and still send you to the same place as Moshe Rabbeinu and the rest of the righteous people that sacrificed their life to follow this Torah. Why? Why would he change his Torah just for you? Every normal person knows that this would never be. Let's stop fooling ourselves. It's time that we abandon our wicked ways, reject the false shepherds, the false teachers, the false prophets that have misled us time and time again, take responsibility into our hands so the next time there's a calamity, the next time that there's a tragedy, the next time there's anger coming from above, it's not heading towards the Jewish people, but rather towards our enemies. And Yiratzon, it may be his will that we will succeed in making this the most extraordinary Tisha B'Av ever. Because it'll be a Tisha B'Av when we finally do Tshuva. Thank you very much for learning with me. May Hashem bless each and every single one of you. I know that some of you have some questions, but I have to get some rest. It's a fast. And there's other Shem, hopefully, Kedosh will give me enough energy where I'll be able to give you guys another shiur in the afternoon tomorrow that will lift us all up towards the completion of this fast, and this day, and make this day a productive day, a day where we get closer to Hashem. For any of you that want to contribute to make a mitzvah during this uh, this day, you want to help us with everything that we're doing, you could donate on the website, bhtorah.org or bezadashem.org. You could donate via uh, Facebook or send a check, or you could even donate as becoming one of the paid members of the YouTube channel or on the app. A lot of different ways that you could donate if you want. If you don't want, at the very least, at least listen to the shoe and follow what Torah says because that's even... A bigger payment than any stock could be. Call to Bachabat's the Khabiz of the Shem will learn more tomorrow.